Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Before we begin the show today, I want to take a moment to acknowledge all of those tragically affected by the mass shootings in El Paso, Texas, and in Dayton, Ohio, over the past week. This episode contains content of a graphic and violent nature. Listener discretion is advised. It started off as a regular Tuesday for 14-year-old Laura Farber, a grade 9 high school student. After her morning classes, she went to the cafeteria to eat lunch with her friends. They sat down at their usual table near the windows. They didn't notice the two duffel bags nearby that contained enough explosives to kill all 500 students in the cafeteria. The timer had been set for 11.17 a.m. But because of faulty wiring, the poorly constructed bombs didn't go off. Meanwhile, two teenage boys waited in the parking lot for the bombs to explode. When they didn't, the pair decided on a quick change of plans. They put on black trench coats, grabbed guns from their cars, and they started walking toward the school's west entrance next to the library. You might think you know what happened next, but what if I told you that you might not know the whole story? I'm Kathy Kinzora. This is the history of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we'll take you back to the shootings at Columbine High School. We'll share the timeline and details from documents released by the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. And we'll talk to people who were there that day. We'll address some of the myths about Columbine and look at the profound impact of one of the most tragic mass shootings in U.S. history. April 20th, 1999 was a warm, sunny spring day. And many students at Columbine High School were taking advantage of the nice Colorado weather by eating their lunch outside. They sat in clusters on the grass around the school. 17-year-old Rachel Scott was eating lunch with her friend, Richard Castaldo. Within minutes, Rachel was shot and killed. Richard was critically injured and was left lying on the grass until he was rescued by SWAT members over an hour later. Nearby, three students came outside through a side door from the cafeteria. When they got outside, they looked up and they saw two schoolmates standing at the top of the stairs. They were armed with what looked like guns. The three students assumed that they were paintball guns. They figured it was some kind of a joke or some kind of weird prank. But it wasn't a joke. The pair opened fire, striking Daniel Rohrbaugh and Sean Graves, both 15, along with 17-year-old Lance Kirkland. All three fell to the ground. A few minutes later, one of the shooters ran down the stairs and shot Daniel and Lance again at close range. Daniel died instantly. Lance was seriously injured. Sean, who managed to crawl away, had made it back to the cafeteria door, but collapsed halfway inside. When the shooter got to him, Sean pretended to be dead. 
Inside the cafeteria, students heard the loud noises and they wondered what was going on. They stood up and looked out the windows. Was it a senior prank? Was someone popping balloons? But just then, teacher and coach Dave Sanders ran into the calf and he told everyone to run or hide. Laura Farber, sitting in her usual spot by the window with her friends, had no idea that anything serious was happening. I mean, kids brought like, you know, one kid had, because <laughs> this is something I'll never forget. He brought his nachos from under the table. He took them down underneath there and he's eating his nachos as we're sitting there. Uh, I remember that being being pretty funny because I, I kind of remember feeling scared because I heard someone has a gun get under the table. What Laura couldn't see was that the shooter had stepped over Sean, who lay motionless in the doorway, and had briefly entered the cafeteria. The room looked empty because most students had run away when Coach Sanders warned them. And anyone who was left was either hiding under the tables or in the kitchen. The shooter scanned the room. Then he stepped over Sean again, went outside, and back up the stairs. Students were now running in all directions. As they ran, the shooters fired. Most kids escaped uninjured, but three more were hit by bullets. I remember I had those, I had really thick, and I think they're coming back in a style now, but they're Birkenstocks, and they had like the thickest heel, and I remember falling or kicking them off because, you know, you can't run in those. When we ran down through the student parking lot, down into the first um, neighboring street, residential street that we could, and I was not at the head of the pack. I think there was someone else leading the way. You know, you just kind of run in a group. Um, had no idea. I mean, I couldn't tell you why we were running. We were just running. Once on the residential street, they started knocking on doors. At the first two houses, no one was home. At the third house... A man answered, and he led about 20 terrified kids into his home. When his house backed up to the student parking lot, so we could see over his fence, more or less, the top of the, the top of the building of the school. And that's when we started hearing, I started hearing gunshots or bombs. Um, it was loud enough to hear through his house and enough to get, to have him ask us to get away from his window. And I don't know, some people were in the closet crying. We were in his living room, some people were in the kitchen, and a lot of us were just literally waiting in line to use his house phone uh, to call our parents. Back at the school, Neil Gardner, the school's uniformed community resource officer, was having his lunch in his patrol car. He was the sheriff's deputy assigned to the school, and normally he would be in the cafeteria, but that day he decided to eat in his car so he could monitor students in the smoking pit. He had just finished when he received a call over his radio from the school's custodian. A panicked voice was asking for him to go to the back parking lot. On his way, Officer Gardner heard a call on the sheriff's radio about an injured female in the south lot of Columbine High School. He assumed someone had been hit by a car. When he pulled into the parking lot and he saw kids running and pointing back toward the school, he wondered what's going on. Then he heard gunshots. Seconds later, he received a second call on his school radio. The caller said, Neil, there's a shooter in the school. That's when Officer Gardner saw the shooters entering the school. Without hesitating, 
he fired four shots, but missed. The shooters continued undeterred. Frank DeAngelis, the principal at Columbine, was meeting with another teacher in his office when the school secretary ran in to tell him there'd been a report of gunfire in the school. Mr. D, as he is known by his students, ran out to the main hallway. That's where he saw one of the shooters. Then he saw a group of about 20 girls coming out of the gym change room. And they were going to be right in the crossfire and a good chance they could have possibly lost their lives. So I ran towards them and we got out of sight of the gunman, but the gunman continued to come after us. And unfortunately, I pulled on the door because I knew if I can get him into the gymnasium, at least we would be safe from the gunman at that point. But I pulled on the door and it was locked and some things happened. And, you know, I really consider this probably a miracle, uh, but I had 35 keys on a key ring in my uh, suit pocket and I reached in. As I stated, the gunman's coming, shots, sounds are getting closer. I reached in, I pulled out a key. The very first key I pulled out, I stuck in the door and opened it on the first try. The first police officers to arrive were met with chaos and hysteria. Terrified students and staff were fleeing from the school in all directions, and many others were still inside. Witness accounts were unreliable. Chaos reigned. There were reports of terrorists, four shooters, six shooters, hostages. Police had no concrete information about what was actually going on inside the school. They were facing live fire and possibly had 2,000 victims and hostages. That's when they turned to Mr. D for help. Because the police uh, gave me a grease board and they said, Frank, we need for you to draw the floor plans of the science wing because that's where we had about three, 300 people trapped. and. You know, I was in shock. I couldn't even remember the numbers on the classroom doors, and they're asking me to draw, you know, the emergency exits, entrances, and things of that nature. And at one point, they said, Frank, is there a possibility you'd be willing to put on body armor to go in the building to shut off the fire alarm? Because I was one of the few who knew how to uh, shut that fire alarm off, and they were getting ready to go in, but they could not communicate because the sound was so loud. I was getting ready to do that, and then the commander came back and said, no one's going in that building until SWAT team arrives. As police were trying to figure out what was going on, the shooters made their way through the school. They were lobbing homemade pipe bombs and firing their guns, leaving a path of destruction as they went. A student was hit, and so was Coach Sanders. The teacher who had cleared the cafeteria was shot from behind, in the torso, head and neck. But he managed to stumble into the science room where another teacher and some students attempted to stop the bleeding. The shooters then headed toward the library where a teacher was holed up with 52 students. Patty Nelson told the kids to get under the tables. She crawled under the library's front counter and called 911. Jefferson County 911. Yes, I am a teacher at Columbine High School. There is a student here with a gun. He has shot out a window. On the call, Patty told the 911 operator that the shooters were right outside the library doors in the hallway. She yelled at the kids to take cover as gunshots are heard in the background. I am on the floor. Okay, you've got the kids there. And I've got every student in this library on the floor. Is there any way you can lock the doors? Um, smoke is coming in from out there, and I'm a little okay. The gun is right outside the library door, okay? I don't think I'm going to go out there. Okay, okay. you're at home in my high school. I got, I got three children. Okay. 
Seconds later, the shooters entered the library. They walked through the room firing. Two students were hit. They shot out the windows, firing at fleeing students along with police officers outside. Police returned fire, but missed. The shooters then turned their attention back to the terrified students inside the library who were hiding under tables and behind shelves. Teacher Patty Nelson dropped the phone. She crawled to the library's break room, and she hid inside a closet. Over the next seven and a half minutes, 10 students were killed and 12 more were injured. That morning, news crews were in nearby Boulder. They were anticipating developments in the John Bonet Ramsey murder investigation. As word of the Columbine shooting spread, the media immediately shifted from Boulder to Littleton, where Columbine High is located. Reporters arrived about 30 minutes after the initial shots had been fired. Then, a local news helicopter began to broadcast live images from the scene. Activity. We're not going to tell you what part of the school, because just in case the gunmen, the suspects inside of the school, have a TV set tuned uh, to, to 9 News, we just don't want to tip the police hand in any way or any form or even uh, give them any hint whatsoever. But uh, we think that in the next few minutes, there might be some activity here and more students hopefully coming out of the building. We think that police may be... The tragedy was being broadcast live. And for hours, we watched the drama play out at the school. This left a permanent scar on our collective psyche. At 12.06 p.m., about 40 minutes after the killing spree began, news cameras showed SWAT members finally entering the school. What we couldn't see was that at roughly the same time, inside the library, the two shooters killed themselves, each with a single bullet to the head. But no one outside the building knew this. Not the police, not the media, not the millions of people watching live on TV. As far as everyone was concerned, the shooters were still alive. They could be killing more students or holding them hostage. You might remember watching the news coverage and hearing gunfire and thinking it was the sound of more people dying. It was actually police firing shots to cover paramedics and other emergency personnel who approached the building to retrieve the injured. Over the next couple of hours, police slowly went room to room looking for the shooters. Along the way, they broke down locked doors and rescued students and staff who had barricaded themselves inside classrooms. Helicopters hovered overhead, capturing live video of students running from the building with their hands over their heads. This is certainly good news, Tony, to see so many, so many young people be able to get to safety. Oh, that was just, I tell you, you uh, up here at altitude, where we started to see a couple come out and then a couple more, and then just, a, a, it must have been 30 or 40 in a group, just all running as quick as they could. And the good news, this group looks like they have not been hurt, and that's certainly good news at this point uh, in this uh, very, very uh, unfortunate drama that's playing out here at Columbine High School. This entire group... One of the most dramatic moments happened when cameras showed a student trying to escape from the library... 17-year-old Patrick Ireland had been shot three times, and he was paralyzed on his right side. Somehow, dazed and injured, 
he pulled himself across the library floor to the window. Everyone watched in horror as Patrick tried to climb out of the second-story window. The only thing below him was a concrete sidewalk. SWAT members quickly drove an armored vehicle under the window. They climbed on top of the roof of the vehicle and reached to grab Patrick as he fell out the window. The image of Patrick's dramatic rescue, it came to epitomize the Columbine tragedy. Meanwhile, in another part of the school, Coach Sanders was slowly dying. Students used cell phones to call 911, begging for help. They even hung a sign out a window that said, Help! Bleeding to death. When police finally got to Coach Sanders, it was too late. He died as he was being carried from the classroom. At 3.20 p.m., four hours after the nightmare began, SWAT members finally entered the library, and they discovered the shooters dead on the floor. Outside, it was mayhem. Members of the media interviewed frantic parents looking for their kids and terrified students who had escaped the school. It's just a gang of about like 20 guys who call themselves the trench coat mafia. They like wear trench coats every day to school. Like, they wear makeup and like, paint their nails and stuff. They're just like, uh, I don't know, everyone kind of thinks of them as different. And they always just hang out with themselves only, kind of associate themselves with like death and violence. They just kind of walk around with big black trench coats. They play war in the school all the time. What do you mean they play war? They just pretend that they're in war. They usually have like just regular like small play guns or whatever and pretend that they're playing. They were saying that um, that they wanted to do this for their revenge um, for the school, I guess, because, I mean, they're such an outcast at our school. Witnesses also said that the shooters seemed to be aiming at jocks who had subjected them to vicious bullying. Based on that alone, just a few comments from traumatized teenage witnesses being interviewed after a dramatic rescue, the media ran with the Trenchcoat Mafia narrative. The day after the shooting, the New York Times ran an article with the headline, The Trenchcoat Mafia. Students on the fringe found a way to stand out. The article linked the shooters with members of a group of students who wore black trench coats every day over top of black goth clothing. They wore black eyeliner, and they talked about a hatred for racial minorities. They also listened to Marilyn Manson. They talked about guns. They played the video game Doom. And they were treated as outcasts at the school. News reports soon made the jump that the shooters had sought revenge against the people who had made fun of them, singling out jocks and racial minorities. We heard stories about how the shooters told the jocks and African-American students to stand up in the library before shooting them. Remember, this was the first U.S. school shooting to take place in the era of the 24-hour news cycle and the story was covered around the clock for weeks. It was one of the top news stories of 1999, and the narrative about bullied, goth-obsessed teens taking revenge on classmates was cemented in our collective memory. But that memory, and in fact, many of those early reports, were simply wrong. It was only after investigators really had time to process the incident 
that they learned the truth. Some of it was correct. The shooters did wear black trench coats that day. Trench coats like Neo, the main character from The Matrix, which was released a month earlier. But they weren't actually part of the trench coat mafia. Columbine student John Savage, who was in the trench coat mafia, said in a New York Times Retro Report documentary that they were video game nerds who liked role-playing games. So yes, the group existed, and they were photographed together for the yearbook, but the shooters were not part of it. And according to Mr. D, the trench coat mafia wasn't considered a threat. It was just a group of kids that basically is a couple of them referred to as you know, nerds from the standpoint that they played Dungeons and Dragons. But that first thing out there is people were looking at a motive for what they were doing. It was easy to go that they were picked on, they were bullied, they were these fringe kids, and that was not accurate information. There was no evidence that the shooters were bullied at school. It was actually the opposite. Did you know that the shooters were known to be bullies themselves? In fact, over a year earlier, in March 1998, Randy and Judy Brown, parents of Columbine student Brooks Brown, filed a report with the sheriff's office stating that one of the shooters had threatened to kill Brooks. The next rumor surrounded the shooters being outcasts or loners. In fact, they weren't the extreme social outcasts and loners as reported by the media. Records released by the sheriff's office showed that the teen shooters did have their own circle of friends, and one of them had taken a date to the prom riding with a dozen friends in a limo just days before the shooting. Bullying was never mentioned in their diaries or on the videos they made before the shooting. They never talked about bullying. They talked about being godlike. They talked about, Harris talked about uh, idolizing Adolf Hitler. He read Mykoff and he talked about social Darwinism and he talked about how this, we're gonna make this world a better place because we're gonna get rid of the weak. And that was not the narrative that was out there. The next myth surrounded their targets. It was said widely by the media that the shooters were targeting jocks. The jock theory hinged entirely on four words one of the killers reportedly shouted in the library. All jocks stand up. This was first mentioned by student witnesses. The thing is, they had shouted all sorts of slurs about every group during the attack. And multiple witnesses indicated they were shooting randomly and indiscriminately. After carefully combing through the boys' diaries, school assignments, and police documents, journalists and investigators now all agree there is no evidence that the killers singled out jocks. The shooters just wanted to kill on a large scale. In the excerpt of their journals, which were released by the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, the shooters wrote about how they wanted to leave an impression on the world. Remember, a school shooting wasn't even their original plan. They initially wanted to set off bombs in the cafeteria. Don't forget, they left those duffel bag bombs in the calf just minutes before hundreds of kids would be arriving for lunch. If those bombs had exploded, those injured and killed would have been random. There is no way of targeting certain individuals with a bomb. Journals that police combed through 
revealed the shooters had been inspired by the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing orchestrated by Timothy McVeigh. It was the worst case of homegrown terrorism in U.S. history, killing 168 people and injuring another 700. According to author David Cullen, the shooters wanted to be more famous than McVeigh. They wanted to be remembered for committing the deadliest terrorist attack in U.S. history. Cullen wrote a book debunking the original Columbine narrative. And in it, he says that the school served as means to terrorize the entire nation by attacking a symbol of American life. Students and teachers were just convenient quarry, what Timothy McVeigh, the shooter's idol, described as collateral damage. So what does it matter that we got it wrong? The fact remains the same. The shooters killed 13 people and injured more than 20 others in a terrifying attack. The motive really doesn't matter, does it? Well, it does matter. Because this incorrect mythology has led to a toxic subculture. A subculture known as Columbiners. And that, in turn, has led to other school shootings and attempted school shootings. An investigation by the progressive magazine Mother Jones, released in 2015, found that since 1999, there have been 21 school shootings by perpetrators who used Columbine as a model. There have been another 53 copycat plots or threats that were thwarted by police, including a planned attack at the Halifax Shopping Centre in 2015. Here's Mr. D again. These two are glorified heroes to many of them. And there's something out there called the Columbine effect that people make reference to these two. And they're planning a Columbine-like attack. And so it was really the narrative that was out there. And even though I'm sure there are people saying, you know, what they did was bad, but they were standing up for people just like me. You know, I was picked on. So look, this is I'm doing this. You know, they're motivating me and that. And it's because of that. Uh, scenario that's out there, that narrative is out there, which is inaccurate, that is offering encouragement to some of these others that are looking to become famous, just as the two. The Sandy Hook Elementary School shooter who killed 26 staff and students idolized the Columbine killers and curated a Tumblr account paying homage alongside a collage of the victims. James Densley is a professor of criminal justice at Metropolitan State University in Minnesota. He's working on a project funded by the National Institute of Justice that will build a database of school shooters in the hopes that it will identify patterns and help find ways to prevent these kinds of tragedies before they happen. Densley cites examples of multiple copycat cases, including one 15-year-old in Oregon and another in Washington State, who were inspired by a documentary about Columbine that included detailed recreations of what happened. Here's Professor Densley. We also had an individual who perpetrated a school shooting who actually convinced his mother to take a vacation, a sort of a pilgrimage, if you will, to Columbine. Um, and I believe the mother felt like this might cure her son of his obsession with the event. 
but in fact only made things worse. And when he perpetrated the shooting subsequently uh, at his own school, he even had references to Columbine etched on the firearm that he used. Densley believes that the deep obsession surrounding the Columbine shooting can be explained by a few things. Columbine got more coverage than any other mass shooting had to that point, which was a reflection on its timing. 1999 was the tipping point for the digital age. More people had access to the internet than ever before, and cable news was at a high point. Densley says the fact that there were two shooters also helped feed into the fascination with the story. This group dynamic was fodder for the talk show hosts and news media because as they tried to figure out who was the leader and who was the follower, this helped to further spin the story. And then in addition to that, the shooters themselves created their own sort of legacy tokens of the event. And I think above all, this is what has enabled Columbine to sort of live into perpetuity because the, the shooters filmed themselves in their preparations. They created these, uh, what are known as the basement tapes, you know, sort of their manifesto and their ideology of why they were doing the things that they were doing and created a, a sort of mythology around uh, the shooting, which has lived on. Densley says that school shooters are usually students who are in crisis, students who have experienced trauma, and students who are actively suicidal prior to the shooting and expect to die in the act. Deeply troubled teens have always existed, but after Columbine, there was a new script for them to follow. For the first time, there was a blueprint for how a school shooting could be carried out, what to wear, how to act, how to talk. And even though there have been many more mass shootings since Columbine, none has eclipsed its notoriety. There's a sort of irony here as well, in as much that Columbine has become the blueprint for subsequent uh, school shootings and mass shootings in school buildings. But the intent of Columbine was actually to be a bombing. And so there's sort of a, you know, a strange... Uh, thing here where a, a failed bombing that turned into a shooting has become the blueprint for how to perpetrate a shooting. Densley believes that we, the public, have contributed to the production and direction of this script. Through our obsession with true crime and films, books, memes, and entire websites devoted to Columbine. By releasing CCTV footage of the shooting to the public by running kids through regular lockdowns and active shooter drills. Society and culture have reared a Columbine generation, modeling that this is now just a normal part of childhood. You know, we go to school and once a month we're going to do a lockdown drill because scary people are going to come into our school and try and kill us. And, and that narrative, when you think about what impact that might be having on, on the sort of the psychology of young people today, I think is probably the, the most powerful legacy of Columbine and, and frankly, the most terrifying. Densley and others have been saying for some time that it's time to rewrite the script. Take back the narrative from school shooters by taking away their notoriety. It starts with no names, no photos, 
and no infamy for mass shooters. That's why I haven't mentioned the names of the Columbine shooters. Research has shown time and time again that mass shooters have explicitly admitted they want fame. So if we stop making them famous, perhaps walking into a school and killing your fellow students might not be as appealing. It's taken some time, but the media has begun to embrace the no-notoriety movement. After Columbine, the shooters were on the cover of Time magazine. Their color photos were in the center of the page, taking up a third of the space. Think about that. The killers, front and center. Meanwhile, small black and white photos of the victims were relegated to the edges of the page. A few months later, another edition of Time magazine had the shooters on the front page again. It was a still photo of them armed with guns taken from CCTV footage inside the cafeteria. The story inside the magazine detailed the videotapes made by the killers before the shooting. Now let's compare that coverage to the Parkland, Florida shooting in 2018. The April cover of Time showed five teenage activists from Stoneman Douglas High School standing above the headline, Enough, no mention anywhere of the perpetrator. The article inside the magazine depicted the everyday lives of the student activists since the shooting that killed 17 classmates and faculty members. The Parkland shooting was the first time that the victims and the survivors were more famous than the shooter. I bet you don't even know his name or much about him. But I'm sure you remember Emma Gonzalez. Politicians who sit in their gilded house and senate seats funded by the NRA telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this. We call BS. We say that tough, they say that tougher gun laws do not decrease gun violence. We call BS. They say a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. We call BS. They say guns are just tools like knives and are as dangerous as cars. We call BS! Something else has changed since Columbine. It's how the police respond to an active shooter situation at a school. At Columbine, police surrounding the school that day took over 40 minutes to go inside. During that time, the majority of killings occurred. Back then, the strategy for police was to surround the scene and negotiate with the gunmen which assumed that the gunman actually wanted something. But in Columbine, like most mass shootings, the perpetrators were on a suicide mission. Negotiations would have been pointless. So now, police are trained to follow the gunfire. They neutralize most major attacks within minutes, and that saves countless lives. Remember when Mr. D said that police were asking him to draw the floor plans of the school? Well, there would be no need for that now. Police have started storing school blueprints to help map out a response plan in the event of a shooting. Columbine marked the beginning of a new era of school shootings. It was a wake-up call to the potential for violence in schools. In response, schools also cracked down on security. In addition to active shooter drills, some schools in the U.S. now have armed guards, 
most have surveillance cameras, and all exterior doors are locked during school hours except for one at the main entrance. The problem with that is usually school shooters are current or former students from the school, so they know their way around the security measures. Laura Farber, that 14-year-old freshman from Columbine you heard off the top, is now a documentary filmmaker. She released a film earlier this year called We Are Columbine. It catches up with several survivors from that day. Laura wishes the media would also consider making changes. But it's when, you know, when they take, like, witnesses coming out of a traumatic situation, I wish we would stop doing that because the shock and the fear on a mass shooting victim's face and then to point a camera on it is just gross to me, and I wish they would stop doing that. Recovery has been a long road for Laura, and it's taken a lot of work to get to where she is now. Again, one of the most important things I learned from making the film, which was part of my healing, um, was that we did the best that we could. And that's something I didn't hear until... um, I was in my late 20s. But, you know, I just kept thinking I was doing everything wrong um, with everything. You know, my anger was wrong. The fact that I'm jumpy is wrong. Um, I shouldn't be crying today. I should be crying today. It was just like, it just nothing ever felt right. Principal Frank DeAngelis retired from Columbine High School in 2014. After the shooting, he pledged to stay at the school until every child who was in the Littleton school system in 1999 had graduated high school. After retirement, DeAngelis wrote a book about his experiences entitled They Call Me Mr. D, the story of Columbine's heart, resilience, and recovery. All proceeds from the book go to charity. He travels around the country speaking about how his community overcame tragedy. And every time there's a school shooting, he travels to the affected community to do what he can to help them try to put the pieces back together. Before I end this episode, I want to take a minute to remember and honor the many lives that were profoundly impacted by the events at Columbine High School. The 12 students and one teacher who died from the injuries they suffered that day stolen from their families and friends. The more than 20 others who were hurt, some with permanent life-changing injuries, including a young man who died in May of this year following a long battle with opioid addiction. He had been prescribed pain medications after being injured during the shooting. And also the many other students and staff at the school that day that weren't physically hurt, family members, first responders, and the entire community of Littleton, Colorado. Thanks for joining me on this journey through the full story of Columbine. I hope you learned something new. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History, 
on Facebook, and you can reach me by email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more history of the 90s.